Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I am J.A. Lovelock, a barrister, an author, but most importantly, a crime junkie. I love reading and I love crime, so what better way than to spend my time with crime writers and find out how they tick and how they marinate together characters, motives, killer instincts, murder suspects and their comeuppance. Welcome back to part two of my interview with the brilliant Lee Russell, who starts off by leading us into the mindset of a murderer. Well, as far as fiction goes... It's a very extreme way of behaving, isn't it? And um, I mean, I'm opposed to physical violence of any kind. I think if you have a problem with somebody, you don't hit out physically. You sit down and you talk about it. And if you can't solve it, you walk away. But if somebody was threatening my life or threatening the life of a member of my family and I had a gun in my hand and knew how to use it, which I wouldn't have no idea, but if I did, would I pull that trigger to save my own life or save somebody else's life? I think I would in that moment of frenzy. And I think we all have our cutoff point. I think to kill another person is always an act of insanity. But for some people, that cutoff point is, is very, very early. And they are, frankly, insane. You know, to shoot somebody over an argument over a packet of chips is insane. So I think we all have our cutoff point. And do I like my characters? I try to understand my characters. I try to see their experience from their point of view. Um, it was in um, To Kill a Mockingbird, wonderful, wonderful book. And I think it was Atticus Finch who said, I'm going to paraphrase because I can't remember exactly, but to judge another person, you have to walk around in their skin. It's so easy to judge people. I don't know if you know Ruth mm. Rendell, a wonderful, mm. wonderful Yes, I do, artist. yes. Yeah. She wrote the most chilling characters, the most chilling killers. And she said, I don't judge other people. I don't think we should. And I agree. I think... If you're going to write about um, evil people, and I think perhaps some people are evil or they just really damaged, I don't know. But if you're going to write about these characters, you have to be inside their head. You have to understand them. I have no idea how I get there, but somehow that, that's what I aim to do anyway. At Crime Time, Barry Forshaw, he said that um, I take my readers into the darkest recesses of the human mm. psyche. Now, how do I get there? I don't know. I'm a, I like to think I'm a reasonably normal person. I was a school teacher. I haven't run around doing evil things. But um, I think it's a, if you are an empathetic person in any way, you, you, you have to try and get inside your character's heads. How far I succeed, I don't know. That's for readers to judge. I'm sure you do. What did we have seen? in your books that made you laugh or made you cry? Are there any scenes that's had an effect on you? I think as a writer, you have to, when you're writing a scene, you have to be very much in that scene and gripped by it. But then you have to be able to also step back because I think it's a, 
possibly a mistake for a writer to get too carried away by what they're writing because readers not, might not be similarly carried away. And one of the things that I've learned on the job is to write for readers. I was very fortunate that when I wrote my first manuscript, I honestly didn't know what I was doing. I was just writing for myself. I was having great fun. Um, every other page, there was a murder or a drug heist or a kidnap. And poor readers wouldn't have known what on earth was going on. And I've learned through being professionally edited many, many times to see my, my stories through readers' eyes. So I think while I'm actually in the throes of writing, I mean, I think there, there are two processes when you're writing. One is the kind of creative outpouring, but then there's also the craft of writing. And I tend to write when I will be totally immersed in the scene and living in it, but then I will rewrite it, thinking about the craft and being a little bit more um, detached about it, really, as if I'm viewing it in a way, as if it's a film or as if I'm reading it myself in a book. And I think if, it's helpful for a writer if you can have that detachment, because I'm not writing just to offload all my many, many um, phobias and obsessions and um, neuroses, I'm writing to, I'm basically a storyteller and I'm writing to tell my readers a story and to do my best to make it come to life. That's my job, if you like. So have I been moved by what I've written? Yes, sometimes I am afterwards. And sometimes I do find some of my characters and what happens to them quite upsetting. I don't write humour very much. I wish I could. I'd love to write humorously. But that's not my bent. I seem to be a bit darker. I mean, my police officers have a bit of banter. But um, I did actually write one humorous novel, which I thought was really funny. <laughs> and my agent liked it. But uh, nobody ever wanted to publish it. Maybe tomorrow I'll wake up with a great idea for a humorous <laughs> novel and write it. And yes. Now, I've heard it said that as a writer, you don't put everything on the page. Leave something for the reader to do. And let them work some things out for themselves. Would you agree with that? Yes, it's it's a constant balancing act. If you don't give your readers enough information and enough clues, then they're going to become frustrated because they don't know what's going on. If you spell everything out for your reader, they're going to become bored because they want the challenge of working out the puzzle. And it is a constant balancing act between the two. This is the thing I find most challenging in writing crime novels. Most of my readers are very, very, are very skilled in reading the genre. They're very experienced in reading crime novels. They're highly intelligent people. How am I going to pull the wool over their eyes? I try and put in a misdirection and my readers will think, aha, uh -huh, she's trying to misdirect us here. It's very, very challenging to sort of trick my clever readers. I do my best. And um, very often readers will work out who the killer is. Sometimes they don't. Some of my books have a bit of a twist that I'm particularly proud of, where I think um, most readers don't see it coming. But you have to put all the clues in. You can't just suddenly on the last page make some big revelation that readers couldn't possibly have known about, because that's kind of cheating. Agatha Christie gets away with it. She does it so well. And you discover on the last page that the maidservant is really his lordship's long lost daughter or something but I think in general that's a bit of a cheat and I, I'm not skilled enough to get away with that so I, I have to give my readers all the clues 
but hide them in such a way that readers don't spot them. And that is very, very difficult. What, what my, my sort of aim is that when we get the final denouement and the readers discover who did it, I want readers to say, oh, yeah, of course. Why didn't I see that? Why didn't I work that out myself? But that is difficult to do, for me anyway. I mean, writers cleverer than me, I'm sure, do it far more easily. But I find that a challenge. Of all the books that you've written, have you got one that you felt, oh, this is my best one? It's not my most popular book, but I did, I did write a historical novel. And that one took me three years to write. Yeah, it's, it's a bit different to my other books. My best book or not, I don't know. I mean, that's not for me to, to judge. Mm. I write the books, put them out there. And uh, if somebody wants to publish them, that's great. And my job is, is just writing them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, thinking about your crime writing, have you got a favourite crime writer that you admire, either past or present? Yeah, I always say that my favourite crime writer is Shakespeare, because all of his great plays, Hamlet, Othello, Lear, Macbeth, Romeo and Juliet, they're all, they all hinge around crimes. Not many people would think about it that way, but that's really quite an interesting thought. Well, if you think about Romeo and Juliet, everybody thinks it's a great love story, which it is. But um, if you take out the character of Tybalt, who has very few lines in the play, actually, he has a very small part, but his killing of, um, I have to remember who it is now, does he kill Benvolio or Mercutio? Well, he kills one of Romeo's friends or relations. And, and from there, the whole story spins out. If you take that out, the uh, story would have ended very differently. And of course, you know, Hamlet with uh, Claudius murdering his brother and everybody getting killed at the end, Macbeth killing the king, which was a huge deal in those days. I mean, in Shakespeare's day, the monarch was appointed by God, and to kill a king was, we like a Catholic killing the Pope. Mm, mm. And then we have Othello who kills his wife. So um, these are great crime stories. And crime runs through the whole of literature, really. And think about the Bible, you know, Cain and Abel, um, Joseph, Esau and Jacob, and Jesus in the New Testament. There are murders and, and crimes throughout literature. And in a way, crime is is conflict, it's it's conflict between people. And that sadly seems to be what makes a, a dramatic story. But um, yeah, I think Shakespeare, without doubt, is my, my most admired crime writer because he really gets inside the characters. And I mean, I think it's true to some extent that he invented the idea of personality and of psychology because his characters are not wooden characters. They're not cardboard cutouts. They they are real people. Think of Shylock. At that time, every other depiction of a Jew in literature was just this stereotypical villain, like a pantomime villain. Shylock, much as we deplore his behaviour in some ways, some of the things he does, he has a, a motivation and we can understand it even if we don't condone it. So, yeah, I think Shakespeare would be my choice, definitely. And it also, of course, avoids having to pick out one contemporary crime writer. There are so many that I admire. I mean, the list is endless, really. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks for that, Lee. Now, let's talk about your writing practices. How do you write and, and where do you write? All my books are written on an iPad with wirelessly attached keyboard. 
And this means I can write anywhere and everywhere. If I'm on the train, if I'm on a plane, if I'm in the car, not when I'm driving, um, I can be writing. And when I'm out and about, I tend not to take the keyboard and I just write on the screen. And when I'm at home or if I've got a deadline coming up, I will sit down with my keyboard and my iPad and off I go. I have an iPad mini that I take out and about with me and I have an iPhone and they're all synced. So whatever I do on one device magically appears on the others. So that gives me backup. And I also, every time I write anything, I email what I've written to myself to give me another backup because I'm really a bit neurotic about uh, backing up my work. When do I write? Well, anytime, wherever I am. I can be in bed, I could be at my desk, I could be um, out for a coffee waiting for somebody, just constantly writing whenever and wherever I can. Well, yes, I was about to say that. You, you seem to be constantly writing. Do you ever get a break from it? Uh, when I'm reading. Oh. And when I'm with family. And um, yeah, I, I type very fast. My mother, as she's no longer with us, she taught me to touch type because she was, you know, back in the day, she was a, a secretary, a copy typist. Her, before she married and had children and all the rest of it, because it was a different era then. She taught me to touch type, and I type very fast, which is enormously helpful. Mm. Oh yeah, and also means I can, I can very easily go through this double process of splurging out creatively, and then going over and I go over and over. And um, Ernest Hemingway said that all writing is rewriting. Well, that doesn't quite stack up because, of course, if you haven't written something in the first place, how do you rewrite it? But I know what he meant. We go over and over and edit and self-edit and self-edit. But then there was another author, and I can't remember who it was. It might have been somebody like William Faulkner, who used to write 200 words a day and never change them because he wrote it so carefully at the time. So we all have different routines. We all have different practices. And we just have to do what, what works for us. Really. So when you start a new novel, do you create a plan? Uh, do you have a beginning, a middle and an end? I would love to say yes. I'd love to be like Jeffrey Deaver, who he spends six weeks writing a detailed plan. He writes basically a synopsis for each chapter. And then he says when he's writing the book, all he has to do is write it. And he can just focus on his writing because he's worked it all out. He's so clever. He's really, really clever. Um, I don't know if you've read any of his books, but he really is clever. And then there's Lee Child, who um, he's passed the mantle on to his brother. But he would sit down every year on September 15th and start writing without an idea in his head and see where the story took him. So I'm a little bit somewhere between the two, really. But um, I, don't, uh, I have a vague idea. I know who my killer is. And then I follow the killer's story. And that sort of takes me through and sometimes, I mean, I always know where I'm going to start, which will be with the body. And I start by knowing who my killer is and why he's doing this. I have a, a sense of him. And then I sometimes know where I'm going to end up. But how I get there kind of evolves as we go along. And it's a little bit like, I mean, when you write a book, you're taking your reader on a journey. And you know your starting point And you know your destination. My starting point is there's a murder. My destination is it all gets sewn up in the end. But how you get there, you know, I might have an idea and as I'm writing it, I think this just isn't working. It's like you've come to a roadblock and you have to go back and take a detour. Conversely, I might be writing and suddenly have a light bulb moment and think, oh, but what if this character didn't do this thing I'm planning for them to do? What if they did something totally different? Where does that take us? 
And so it's um it's part of the fun of it that the book kind of evolves. And I think if I knew exactly what was going to happen in the book, I might not feel quite so inspired when writing it because I know what's going to happen. And I'm exploring along with my reader what happens in the story. And it's a little bit of a dodgy thing to do because what if it doesn't work out and I have a, a deadline, I have to deliver the manuscript by a certain date. All I can say is that so far it seems to have worked, but there may come a day when it doesn't work. So we just have to see. But I think that fear that most writers experience as you're writing, you, you, you have your opening, you have your starting, and off you go and it's all very exciting because this is something new. And then you get to a point where you don't really have time to go back and change it all because you've got to deliver the manuscript. But you realise that it's complete rubbish and you panic and you think either it's not working or you think, I don't know how I'm going to end this. And I think that terror, fear is a little bit akin to excitement, isn't it? It's kind of two sides of a coin. And I think that fear is is quite, uh, it can be quite exhilarating, but it was it was more fun in a way with my first book because I didn't know anybody was ever going to read it. Now I do feel I'm, I'm conscious when I'm writing that there is a readership out there who are waiting for the next book and I don't want to disappoint them and I don't want to deliver something that doesn't work for my publisher. So, um, but yeah, so far so good is all I can say. We live in hope and at the end of the day, that's all any of us can do, isn't it? <laughs> Just keep going and live in hope. We do indeed, we do. So it sounds to me then like you let your characters take the lead and lead the story. Yes, I do follow the characters and sometimes they evolve. They're not quite who I thought they were going to be. And this is another balancing act. I talked earlier about the balance between telling your readers too much and not telling them enough. There's also a balancing act between making your characters a little bit unpredictable so they're not boring. You want to give your reader a few surprises. But at the same time, you don't want your characters to be too inconsistent. Real people are very inconsistent. I find on different days, I'm like a different person. Some days I wake up feeling really confident and, yeah, I can do anything. And other days I don't want to get out of bed. And some days I'm in a really happy mood and some days I'm just grumpy with everybody. You cannot have a character in a book who is that inconsistent because then readers won't get a sense of who the character is. So it's a balancing act between making your characters a little bit unpredictable, but also plausible and sufficiently consistent to make sense as a character. But, um, yeah, I, I, um, I sometimes go off on a little tangent to see where it takes me. It keeps the, it keeps the books interesting for me as well, because I don't know what's going to happen. I genuinely don't know what's going to happen. Um, I don't decide right at the end who the killer is because I think you have to have an idea of who your killer is so that you can point your readers in the right direction or misdirect them. And if you don't know where you're going to end up, again, like a journey, really, if you don't know where you're aiming to end up, then you can't keep going in roughly the right direction. But how you get there can change, your route can change. Well, you've clearly been very successful at this. So are there any successes that you could share with us at the moment? Apart from selling one million, two million copies? Well, just still being here and still writing books and people still reading them, really. I think it's 
I think it's a whole um, body of work, really, rather than picking out one particular book. Cut Short was shortlisted for a major award, which was very exciting. And that kind of put me on the map. That was very helpful in terms of um, my whole career. Um, I've been shortlisted for a few awards, never actually won one. But um, just being shortlisted is is, is very, uh, I'm very grateful for that. Mm. Very thankful. Mm. Um, we've sold the TV option a couple of times. That was very nice. But um, the, the series never actually made it to the small screen. It, it might still, who knows, these things happen in mysterious ways. Um, particular successes. I can't think of anything exceptional. I'm, I'm very pleased that I've made some really lovely friends along the way, friends around the world. And with um, lockdown ending, it's great now that uh, a few weeks ago, a friend, fellow author, I don't know if you've come across Bill Beverly, wrote um, an amazing book called Dodgers, which was um, awarded the gold, the CWA gold dagger and the new blood dagger or debut dagger in, in the same year. It was his first novel and it won best novel of the year and best first novel of the year. And um, he emailed a couple of weeks ago to say, oh, I'm over in London next week. Do you want to meet up? And we did. And it was just lovely to see mm. him because I've met him a few times mm. over the years. And I've, I've made some really, really good friends in the writing community. The crime writing community is a very, very all-embracing and friendly community. And because I've been to quite a number of um, literary festivals over the years, I've met a lot of authors who I hugely admire, like Lee Child and Jeff Deaver and Peter James at crime festivals, and we've become friends. And, and that's been very nice. It, it's really become a, a lifestyle. Mm. And my publisher is a very good friend now, as is my agent. So I, I view that as a bit of a success, really, although maybe not in the way that uh, you, you would uh, be asking about. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, it counts. It all counts. And what about some of the challenges that you've had to overcome? to be as successful as you are today? I just keep going. I don't know what the particular challenges are, really. I, I just keep going. And um, the success is almost a byproduct because what I'm really doing is writing and telling stories. That's what I'm doing. And everything else is kind of beyond my control, really. Um, I've really enjoyed, uh, I, during lockdown, I ran some um, online creative writing classes and uh, I've, I've taught creative writing in Greece and in um, France and, and other, other places and in the UK as well, obviously. And I've, I've really enjoyed helping other writers. I, I chair, you mentioned earlier, I think I chair the judging panel for the Crime Writers Association Debut Dagger Award. And that's really helpful to aspiring writers if they if they're shortlisted or win that award. And um, I, I do some critiques for the Crime Writers Association when I have time. And I also work for the Royal Literary Fund, helping not um, creative writing, but helping students and um, adults who are studying with their writing skills. And I do enjoy that because my background was teaching. Uh, you know, I, I gave up teaching to write full time, but I was a teacher for about 25 years. And so I enjoy doing that as well. I mean, there are all sorts of kind of spin-offs, really. 
I'm glad you mentioned um, writing courses because did you take a writing course yourself before you started writing your crime fiction? And do you think it's important? No. Um, when I when I was younger, it never occurred to me to try and write anything. There were no creative writing courses around as there are nowadays. And to me, authors were sort of rare and different beings who lived somewhere far off, I don't know, almost like not real people. What I did do was I read. I had no intention of writing. That wasn't my plan at all. It never, I say it never even crossed my mind, but I might be able to write. But I read avidly for about 40 years. And then one day I had an idea and started writing. And... Um, William Faulkner gave what I think is the best advice for aspiring writers. And he said, read, 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 read everything. And then he said, and I'm going to paraphrase, but he said, you will get to know what works and what doesn't work. You'll see what, what is good writing, what isn't good writing. He's basically talking about honing your, um, your, your judgment, honing your, your judgment of what works. And he says, and then write, and you will know if it works or not. And I think by spending 40 years reading avidly, reading everything I could lay my hands on, I think I inadvertently taught myself how to write. And I think that was my, my training. In terms of whether creative writing courses are a good idea or not, I don't know. I think um, you, can, you can learn something about the craft of writing but the creativity is not something that can be taught and in a way um William McIlvanny he, he's dead now wonderful crime writer the, he's known as the father of tartan noir and um he used to teach creative writing and he said he he sometimes thought that um he's he, and he told his students that not following his advice was probably more valuable than following it. He said, you have to find it for yourself, really. And uh, I think there's a lot in that. He said, you don't want to overanalyze this. And I think there's a danger. I think a lot of creative writing courses are very, very helpful. I'm sure they are. But I think there is a danger in overanalyzing what you're doing. Because I think a lot of writing and writing that really works and that really impacts on readers I think it comes from the unconscious and you can't teach that. I mean, sometimes when I'm writing, a character will do or say something and I'm not quite sure why they do or say it, but it feels right. And then later in the book, something happens and I realise, oh, of course, that's why they said or did that earlier on because it was leading up to this. But I wasn't consciously aware of that at the time. It comes from the back of your mind. You're not really aware of it. And I think if you try and bring too much out into the front of your mind, you're going to lose focus on, on your guttural feelings, your instincts. You're going to be constantly judging what you're writing. So I think there is a risk that you might lose something in the process. The craft of your writing will be honed, will be brilliant, will be beautiful. But I worry that you might actually lose something. Um, I don't know. I've not attended a creative writing course. I've only taught them, so I don't know. And I just teach from my own experience. Yes. Yeah. Um, over the years, I've I've fallen down many pitfalls. I, I I can give so much advice to aspiring writers about what not to do 
because I probably made every mistake in the book. And I've been very fortunate that I've had wonderful editors along the way who've, I mean, I've learned so much. I've, I've had, I think, 30 books now professionally edited by top editors because, of course, my publisher organises the editing and the top editors work for publishers because they get repeat work. It sort of makes sense. And so publishers can kind of handpick their editors. And I've had about 30 manuscripts of my own edited quite rigorously and ruthlessly by top editors. And I have learned so much from them. And so I'm able to pass on the, um, the benefit of my experience. You know, don't do what I did because it didn't work, but you could try different ways. I can't tell people what to do, but I can, I can certainly tell them what I did that didn't work. And as you know, the crime fiction market is huge at the moment. If a new writer was trying to break into this market, would there be room for them? Who knows? There are no rules in this game. And in writing, there are no rules other than make it work. And so in terms of a new writer, all I could say is have a go. Make sure your manuscript is as good as it possibly can be before you send it out. Um, there was one um, writer I came across on one of my courses, and they had written a manuscript, edited it, put it away, thought about it, edited it again, sent it out to six um, agents, and then they worked on it again and sent it out to another six agents, and they maybe had some feedback from these agents, so they worked on it again and sent it out to another six agents. By the end of the process, it was probably as good as it was going to be, but nobody took it on. It may be that one of the first six agents, had they seen the final manuscript, would have taken it on. So I would say, work on your manuscript, take advice, get it critiqued. The Crime Writers Association do expert critiques uh, for a very competitive price because they're not doing it as a business. They're not doing it to make money. It's not a commercial enterprise. They do it to help writers. And obviously they charge because the readers have to be paid and there's admin costs, but uh, they're very, very competitive. So you don't need to spend a load of money getting your work edited, but do have a second pair of eyes on it. Do work on it, put it away, come back to it six months later with a fresh pair of eyes. You know, make sure it's as good as it can be before you send it out. Find a literary agent if you can, because they have access to publishers. But there are publishers now that accept um, unagented manuscripts. There are a lot of new publishers who are digital only. They don't pay in advance, but they will publish your, your book. And um, there are all sorts of avenues now. And a lot of people self-publish very successfully. I've never done that because I wouldn't know how. I'm not clever enough to do all the technology. Um, I, and I like to have a team behind me. All I want to do is write the books. Obviously, as a writer, you have to do some self-promotion, but I don't really want to do all of that. I just want to write. So um, there are all sorts of avenues. You can go the traditional route, finding a, a publisher who will pay you in advance, which is very nice because they've then made that commitment and they will hopefully give you some promotion. They will certainly provide an editor and proofreading team and so on, all the way from that to self-publishing. But it's you're right. The competition is very, very fierce now, very fierce. And um, everybody seems to be writing a book. And I think this is one effect of the internet. And in some ways, it is a wonderful thing because it has democratised the whole process. 
And nobody's shut out now. There are no gatekeepers. Nobody is prevented from publishing their book and getting it out there because it's not been taken on by somebody else. But at the same time, it does mean that we are awash with books. I mean, there are, I can't remember how many hundreds of books are being published in the UK alone every day. And the sort of buzzword now in publishing, and has been for quite a long time, is discoverability. How do you get your book discovered? We are all a tadpole in an ocean. So a bit like I was saying earlier on with printing, there are two sides of it. It could be a tool for universal education and enlightenment. It can also be used for propaganda and suppression of ideas. So, yeah, the, the Internet is an interesting experiment by the human race. And we don't yet know where it's going to take us. And if you want to really shock a group of teenagers, ask them, what would they do if the entire Internet crashed? Because they can't conceive of a world without the Internet. And my dad, who's 97, he kind of laughs at that. And he says, well, we'd use the old technology, pick up a pen and a piece of paper. <laughs> because he, he's lived, and as I had mm -hmm. when I was younger, lived through a time when the Internet didn't exist as far as ordinary people were concerned. It's changed the whole world in the way that printing changed the whole world. Yeah, yeah. And in many ways, it's changed it for the better. Yes. It means we can chat to each and see each other. It's wonderful. Yes, yeah. I mean, there are all sorts of wonderful things about it, but there are some downsides. If you're a struggling author, you sometimes wish, mm, if only there were not so many thousands and thousands yes. of books coming yes. out. Yes, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Lee, what a pleasure. An absolute pleasure to catch up with you after all this time. And thank you for taking the time to have a chat. Well, it's been lovely, lovely chatting to you. And uh, hopefully we'll meet up in the real world again <laughs> yes. before too long. <laughs> lovely. Thank you very much. And have a lovely day. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit murky here, actually. What a great two-parter. My thanks to Lee Russell for what was effectively a masterclass in crime fiction writing. Lee's latest novel, Final Term, was published on the 26th of January and coming soon in August is Without Trace, all starring Detective Inspector Jebeldine Steele. And we also spoke about the launch of Lee's brand new British cosy crime series, Barking Up the Right Tree. And the first copy in this series is published on the 23rd of March. So be sure to get your copies wherever good books are sold. So thanks for listening. Join us next time as we go behind the yellow tape and catch up with more episodes at btytpodcast.com as well as on all podcast platforms. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.